You're listening to GDA Podcast, powered by GDA Speakers, now available on iTunes and all other podcast platforms with new episodes every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. GDA Podcast showcases insightful conversations from the best thought leaders, educators, policy experts, motivators, and storytellers on the keynote speaking circuit today. Want today's guest at your next event? Call GDA Speakers at 214-420-1999 or visit gdaspeakers.com. And now, here's this episode of GDA Podcast with hosts Scale and Kyle Davis. Enjoy. Sonia Nazario is an award-winning journalist whose stories have tackled some of the country's most intractable problems, hunger, drug addiction, immigration, and have won some of the most prestigious journalism and book awards. She is best known for Enrique's journey, her story of a Honduran boy's struggle to find his mother in the U.S., Published as a series in the Los Angeles Times, Enrique's Journey won the Pulitzer Prize for feature writing in 2003. It was turned into a book by Random House and became a national bestseller. I'm thrilled to have Sonia join us today on GDA Podcast. Welcome, Sonia. Hey. Welcome. Thank you. Delighted to be here. Thank you. So I think um, when we were talking uh, prior to going to, to record, we were, we were mentioning kind of you know, how we would structure this in the narrative. And because immigration and, and humanitarian rights are just such a salient issue for the times, that it's probably a good way to start is actually to give the backstory. So if you could jump into there and maybe we can talk about your background and then, and then talk about Enrique's journey as well. Sure. Well, I, I've always been fascinated by the issue of immigration because I am the child of immigrants. Uh, I'm the only one in my immediate family born in the U.S., uh, and I have a lot of migration in my uh, veins and my blood. Uh, my my father's family fled uh, Christian persecution in Syria in the 1920s, and they fled to Argentina. My mother her Jewish family, my mother was born in Poland and they fled before World War II to Argentina. The ones who didn't leave were all killed in Auschwitz. And um, then my parents seeking opportunity and also increasing control over universities by the military around 1960 came to the US and that's where I was born. So I've always been fascinated by the issue of immigration, I've always felt somewhat like I had a foot in both worlds because I grew up both in Kansas, where my father and mother settled, uh, of all places in the U.S., and um, and also Argentina. When, when my father died suddenly, um, when I was 13, uh, my mother decided to take us back to live in Argentina, and um, her, her timing was terrible. It was just as the dirty war was launching in Argentina, the military was taking power and they would disappear about 30,000 people in the coming few years. So I lived in fear most days when I was 14, 15. Um, The military would pick up people off the streets never to be seen again. I had, you know, family members, a young family member who was picked up, almost tortured to death, a 16-year-old friend who Um, was murdered. They tortured him to death. They broke all the bones in his face. And really, it was that experience um, of seeing two journalists murdered on my block, seeing that pool of blood on the sidewalk and asking my mom, you know, what happened here? Uh, And she told me that that these two journalists were trying to tell the truth about what was going on. 
And that's what really motivated me to become a journalist because I felt that, um, you know, without truth tellers, without journalists, you you can't really have a strong democracy without people who are willing to question people in power and hold them accountable. So um, that that's why I've been interested in immigration. And that's why I became a journalist and have told these stories. Could you, and I, I'm only asking this question because it, it just seems like a, uh, like I said, just it's a salient issue. I mean, you, you look at the protest, and, and we're recording this on the tail end of March uh, in 2017, and you look at the protests that are happening in Russia just a couple of days ago where they're, you know, uh, there's protests against Putin and they were rounding up journalists and rounding up people. Uh, and then you even look at what's going on in this country. Can you talk about just for a moment the importance of journalism and having people like yourself speak truth to power? Well, I think, um, you know, we, we live in an era of alternative facts. And I, I think both in terms of the narrative that people are hearing and in terms of the facts that people are hearing, um, on both sides of the equation politically, I think the, that you need journalists who are willing to be fair, to wade into an issue um, and leave their baggage behind and try to ascertain as best as they can, what's what? And I think this is more important than ever now. We, I, I don't know about you, but I feel barraged by information every day. I mean, 20, 30 years ago, uh, you know, there was no email, there were no computers, uh, and, um, you know, you had to deal with a few phone calls, but now I deal with hundreds of emails every single day. And I think for many of us, it's hard to really understand what would work to reduce uh, unlawful migration? How do we truly, what's the real problem with our educational system and how do we fix it? And I think journalists can not only hold people in power accountable, but they can try to wade into these very complex issues like immigration and tell us what's true and what's not true and what would work and what really does not work, despite it may work politically, but it doesn't work if the goal is to stem unlawful migration and keep more migrants back home where honestly most of them would rather be and keep them safe in these countries that they're coming from. So I think our role is more important than ever. And to that point, I mean, the way that Enrique's journey became a book was it coming from a series uh, of, of articles that you wrote for the Los Angeles Times. And I'm curious as to what your thought process is um, about long form journalism as it is today and like in, in the soundbite economy, <laughs> if you will. I mean, like, I mean, people have limited attentions. I mean, I, more often than not, I see my friends just posting articles uh, on Facebook or Twitter after they just read the headline. They actually haven't read it. Uh, whereas I actually read it and go, yeah, you probably shouldn't have posted that. It's not really talking about what you wanted. Uh, so I am curious as to what your thought process is, is with that. And, and and that's probably a good way to segue into Enrique's journey of talking about how to publish it into something that's easy to digest and making it more manageable versus some long form expose. Well, you know, I, I also despair at people posting when they don't read. And I go speak at journalism schools at colleges across the country and I ask them to raise, these are journalism students, I ask them to raise how many read a newspaper and many raise their hands, but then I ask how many of you read beyond the headlines and far fewer raise their hands and they want to be journalists. So I, I kind of grab my head like, oh God, no. Um, but the truth is that what what we're finding is that people want something in two paragraphs that kind of gives them the information they need. 
And then they want those long form stories that really take a deep dive and take them into an issue and take them on a ride. That's what I, I, I mean, I feel many of my stories um, transport you to a different world that you do, didn't know anything about, that um, have all the elements uh, in journalism that you look for in, in great books, that have a narrative arc, uh, that have great characters, that have conflict, they have a question that you have to have answered. and. Uh, you keep reading to the end. Um, all those great elements, um, and people still want that. You see people, um, uh, you know, buying the New Yorker. You see people reading these long form stories in newspapers. So I think we're seeing kind of a demand for the the two extremes, and there is still a strong demand. Uh, I was just at a conference called The Power of Narrative at Boston University. And there were, you know, six, 800 people in the audience trying to learn to become better storytellers. And, you know, I think since the beginning of time, when we sat around the fire and told stories, this is how we have truly communicated in a deep, profound, meaningful way. And that won't change. I think one of the interesting things now that I'm starting to see and you've been seeing it like the last couple of years, maybe uh, with like the New York times or the Los Angeles times or Washington post or any of these major publications within journalism, you're just starting to see like multimedia uh, different things kind of going through it. So like they'll post an article online, but then at the same point in time, it'll have a, an attached, um, you know, short interview that's maybe 10 or 12 minutes long. That's, you know, if you don't want to read, you can just watch the interview or, or, or something right. like that, but it gives you different avenues um, to consume that journalism in, in a different way. Yeah. And in the morning, that's all you may have time for. But I save articles in the New York Times, the LA Times, the Washington Post, La Opinion, uh, and then I, I save them and on, on the, the website. And then those are saved to read, you know, when I crawl in bed with my iPad, which is probably a bad thing to do in terms of your sleep. But yeah, the blue uh, light's I, not good for you. No, but I, I, I think that's what a lot of people do. So let's talk about uh, Enrique's journey and kind of how you came about this uh, sure. this this boy's story, and we can kind of go from there. Or this guy's story now. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, for me, it started with a conversation that I think a lot of people might have. Um, I had a woman, Gadamin, who would clean my house twice a month in L.A., where I live. And one morning, uh, I asked her if she was thinking about having any more kids, and she was normally this chatty, happy woman. But when I popped that question, she started sobbing. And she explained to me that she had left four children behind in Guatemala, that she was a single mom. Her husband had left her. Most days she could only feed them once. And she said at night, my children would cry out to me with hunger and I had nothing to give them. And she showed me that morning in my kitchen how she would gently coax those four kids to roll over in bed at night and say to them, sleep face down so your stomach doesn't growl so much. She said she had left them with their uh, grandma in Guatemala and she had come north to LA to work and that she hadn't seen them in 12 years. And I, I, it just blew my mind. I could not understand. I mean, I'm not a mother, but like what level of desperation would it possibly take to walk away from your kids? She went 2,000 miles north having no idea when she when or if, you know, she would see those kids again. And what I soon learned um, was that there were millions of people like my house cleaner, Karamen, who single moms who had come to the U.S. in recent decades 
left children behind thinking this will be one, two years. I'll send for you, for my son quickly, or I'll come back to you quickly. But life in the U.S. is a lot tougher than they think it's going to be. And these separations stretch to five, ten years. And these kids, like Carmen's oldest son, despaired of seeing their mother again. And so they would set off on their own to come and find their mothers. And because they had no money to make this journey through Mexico, uh, they did it the only way they could, which is gripping onto the tops and the sides of freight trains that travel up the length of Mexico. Um, It's an extraordinarily uh, dangerous, difficult journey. It is a modern day odyssey because there are gangsters that control the tops of the trains. There are bandits alongside the rails. There are a dozen different kinds of corrupt cops trying to, and all these folks from the moment these children step on Mexican soil to try to travel north, they're being hunted like animals by people trying to rob, rape, beat them, uh, kill them, uh, and deport them. And so um, I wanted to write about these, um, back in 2000, it was about 48,000 children who made this journey every year from Mexico, Central America, traveling alone with no parent by their side. These are kids as young as seven years old traveling across four countries alone. I I traveled with a 12-year-old who was traveling alone to find his mama in San Diego, California from Honduras in Central America. So they're traveling alone and entering the United States unlawfully. And I wanted to uh, talk about what this was like for these children, this journey, um, what they were leaving, what they were willing to do to get to the United States. And who Americans' new neighbors are because, you know, migrants used to go to six states, pretty much Texas, Florida, New York, California, um, Illinois. But in the last two, three decades, immigrants have gone everywhere. And that's um, been both good, but raised enormous hostility in communities that have not seen immigrants in a hundred years when they came from Germany and Italy and Poland. And so I wanted people to understand these are your new neighbors. This is why they're coming. And this is what they've been through. Yeah. You look at where a lot of the immigration is flowing now, especially those countries that you mentioned from Central America, whether it's Guatemala, El Salvador or Honduras, it's overwhelmingly, you know, the diaspora or the immigrants or whatever you want to call them. Um, they're finding themselves in Colorado or Mississippi or, or some other state that's not Texas or a border state like Arizona or California. So, yeah. And I think, I, I think it's important to stress that um, this is where migrants are coming from unlawfully. Now they're coming from El Salvador, Guatemala, Honduras, um, more they're, they're much less so coming from Mexico, which has been the primary driver of illegal migration. Today, more Mexicans leave the U.S. each year than come here. There is a net out-migration of Mexicans, but the the, the really uh, largest numbers of folks coming now are coming from these countries in Central America. Yeah, I remember uh, I lived in New Orleans right after Katrina. Am I horrible? My Spanish is not as good as my mom's or my dad's. But I remember right. like um, right after Katrina, you know, talking to some of the guys uh, that were there for work to help, you know, with the cleanup effort and everything. 
they weren't from Mexico. I could barely understand their dialect of Spanish. And yeah. Overwhelmingly, they're from Honduras or like Honduras. Yeah. 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 I think uh, New Orleans has um, the largest, um, one of the largest concentrations of Hondurans outside of Honduras. So um, it's huge. And many were drawn to New Orleans um, it, to reconstruct, which also created ma- many conflicts with African Americans in New Orleans who felt, you know, that. That whole issue about are they taking our jobs or, or are these jobs that people from here really don't want to do. Right. So could you speak to the the the, the thirty thousand foot view of Enrique's journey and, and kind of you know what it was for him? Or the story, if you will. Sure. Well, uh, I met Enrique. Uh, I wanted to tell the story of these tens of thousands of children who make this journey alone every year through one boy's true story. And I met Enrique in uh, northern Mexico. He was on his eighth attempt to make it through Mexico and reach his mother, who initially had come to California. She was now in, um, in North Carolina. And he had been passed from relative to relative in Honduras. His mother left him when he he was just five years old when she walked away from him and came to work in the U.S., uh, left him and his uh, sister behind. And he had been passed from relative to relative. He had started sniffing glue, getting into trouble. And he came to view his mother as really his only salvation. If he could reach her, then everything would be right with the world. And so he set off alone to find her when he was 16. And I met him when he was 17. He was on his eighth attempt. Um, He was sleeping outside on the muddy banks of the Rio Grande, just trying to survive and eating once a day. Uh, And I... I watched him for about two weeks. I hung out with him in the morning, middle of the night, and then I went back to Honduras, and I did this journey step by step, just like he had done it a few weeks before. So I would travel three months on top of seven freight trains, 1,600 miles, um, to really uh, reconstruct uh, what he had been through. And, you know, he went through hunger, cold, um, heat. Uh, he's almost beaten to death on top of a train one night. Um, he also experiences incredible kindness with people who have nothing in the middle of Mexico, in the state of Veracruz, who, um, you know, people who make a dollar a day, who extend a hand and throw food to migrants on the top of the train. So he exper- experiences really the best and the worst of humanity. Um, and he eventually reaches his mother in, in the United States. And then a lot of that resentment comes out. Uh, a lot of these children say, feel, uh, you know, my mom said she was coming right back for me. Uh, this is the person who's supposed to most love me in the world. And she abandoned me. And so he had a lot of conflicts with his mother, as many of these children do after uh, reunifying with her. We're just looking to the, it's such a sad story. It's, uh, it's, it's really, it's so intense. And I know it's been adopted by numerous universities. Um, what do you think the tie-in is there? Because I think it's, we'll share with the listeners how many universities have picked it as a first year read or an all school read. Sure. Well, about 100 universities have now, it's been chosen it as a freshman or common read where everyone who starts that at that college mm-hmm. has to read and discuss one book, and they've chosen Enrique's Journey. Hundreds of high schools, and now with the young adult version, many middle schools are adopting it in this way. And I think they've adopted it. It's been among the most adopted books by colleges 
because they look for books that promote uh, global awareness, that promote uh, diversity, that have a protagonist that's a similar age as kids who are going to college, maybe facing some of the same issues, family separation, potential uh, drug use as they uh, go off and are alone for the first time in college. But it's a, it, you know, there are many sad elements to the book, but it's also a story of enormous determination against all odds to make it uh, to its, his mother. It's a story of uh, universal themes of uh, a boy who's willing to go through a hostile world um, to reach the mother that he loves. And I think it's a story that, at least for me, I mean, I lived it. I still have post-traumatic stress from living this. I was almost raped on top of the train. I almost have a, had a branch swipe me off the top of the train. It swiped off a boy on the car behind mine. And he um, probably died as he uh, fell down to those churning wheels below. Um, it, it made me enormously grateful for what I have being born in this country um, by sheer luck. I'm the only one in my family born here. And so I think those are all the elements that have kind of drawn people uh, to the book. And I think just educators wanting people, you know, before you hate, at least understand. And for me, that's been the best part of this journey. Uh, I mean, I spent five years writing this book, but every day I get emails from students who say, I was forced, and usually forced is in capital letters, uh, to read your book. And then their, their tone softens and they say, you know, I was born, I was uh, raised racist, anti-immigrant, to hate all immigrants. I don't know any immigrants, but that's what I was taught growing up. There was only one way to view this. You put me in the shoes of one migrant boy, and it changed my perspective, and I feel a different way now. And so for me, that's been enormously uh, gratifying as, uh, you know, perhaps millions of people now have read this book. I love that. I love putting a face on an issue. I love that. Yeah. And I also like, um, it, it didn't go past me when you talked about how Indrike saw the worst and the best of humanity, because I have been in your audience before. And I remember, and I may have this slightly off, but it feels like there's a, a village somewhere along the tracks where some very poor people have created almost a respite home to care for people who have been injured along the way. And, they take care of these people and try to heal them so they can continue the journey or go back home. Do I have that right? Yes. In Chiapas, in the southernmost state of Mexico, there's an amazing woman, Olga Sanchez. She has not one now, but two shelters for uh, migrants who are uh, mutilated by the train. So many migrants are thrown off the gangsters who the gangs uh, I would see 10 or 20 gangsters on top of every train, roaming car to car, robbing migrants, raping, throwing them down to those churning wheels, or people fall asleep after days on the train. And as you fall down, it sucks you into the wheels. And I saw way too many people, children without arms or legs or fingers. And this is a, a shelter that's full of people that have lost limbs to the train, which they call La Bestia. And so um, she now also has a, a shelter for um, refugee women and children. Uh, the, the issue has truly shifted enormously in recent years uh, because 
you know, when Enrique came, he came to find his mom. He came for a better life. He was what I call an economic migrant. Um, but today, um, many of these countries in Central America are the most violent places on earth. As we squeeze the narcos in Colombia and Mexico, they moved uh, landing their drug flights to places like Honduras, which until last year had the number one homicide rate in the world of countries uh, not at war. El Salvador now has the number one homicide rate in the world. Uh, rates of violence that are similar to uh, the, the civil war, which I covered, which is just uh, mind blowing. And so today, many of these children are fleeing for their lives because they're being forcibly conscripted at young ages, nine, 10 years old, the gangs or the narcos that work with them are saying, you're going to join and work with us or we'll kill you. We will wipe out your whole family in this country. So many of them now are fleeing for their very lives, which is what has caused me uh, to become much more of an advocate for these children than I once was. Yeah, I think that's something that's missing in, in this because I, I think you kind of hit the nail on the head earlier where a lot of people – just assume because the the passage is through Mexico that everybody's Mexican and they're not. Uh, so they automatically have this assumption that, you know, let's fix the Mexican economy or the violence in Ciudad Juarez or something like that. But that's really not what the problem is where these migrants are coming from. It's it's the gang violence. It's like MS-13 in Honduras or El Salvador or something like that. That's really like – running the show over there and it's the conscription element of it that's really driving a lot of like kids especially boys coming up right and that's why when you hear political leaders here talking about how to solve the immigration issue here in the u.s i stress that the solutions are truly south of the border and you see that with mexico mexico for 30 years promoted family planning uh and they have gone from having nearly seven kids per family to about just over two. And that's put a lot less pressure on Mexicans to migrate, to feed all those mouths. And so now you have a lot fewer Mexicans coming to the United States. Some experts believe that the great wave of migration from Mexico is over. Some aren't sure. They think that if our economy really starts percolating, that will draw more Mexicans for these jobs. But uh, I, I really believe that, um, you know, you, you, we keep trying the same three approaches to solve this uh, immigration dilemma in the United States. We, we, we uh, talk about border enforcement. We spend $18 billion a year at this. Uh, and yet 97% of people who try repeatedly are able to get past that wall. I mean, you can ask the Chinese. The Great Wall of China did not keep out the Mongols. Uh, and um, there, there are ways to get in, and no matter how difficult you make it. And as someone told me, who studies uh, Central America, if you're if you if you're sitting in Honduras and you feel like your house is on fire uh, because of this enormous violence, you're going to find a way to get out, no matter what. Um, we tried guest worker programs here, um, and yet most. Uh, guest workers who come here, they're supposed to go home within a certain amount of time, but instead they stay and create the foundation of the wave of migration that followed from Mexico. And we've tried on the left legalization, but the problem is that when you legalize people, um, they tell their friends and families, come on up. And, 
you know, we've got, we went from 3 million in 1986 when we had an amnesty to 1 million to now 11 million who are here uh, illegally. And so I think the three things we keep trying over and over that are part of comprehensive immigration reform simply haven't worked. And we need a third way, which is aimed at how do you start to reduce the violence, which is what's really pushing droves of people out of Honduras, El Salvador, Guatemala, how do you start to address that so that people don't feel like they have to flee their countries? Because, and, you know, I mean, I saw this with my own family. My mother would have preferred to live in Argentina if she could have, but it was so violent that she couldn't. Uh, most people don't want to leave their home countries. If they can stay with all the things they know and love, their family, their culture, their language, they don't want to have to leave. And most of these folks wouldn't leave if they had a choice. Forgetting where I heard this from, but it's almost like uh, in treating an illness or a disease kind of like cancer. So instead of like doing whole body chemo, doing a spot treatment and focusing right. all of the focusing all of your efforts into, you know, mitigating or removing the the, the cartels and, and all the, the, the gangs and stuff in Honduras would be more beneficial than, you know, tripling or doubling, you know, the border patrol and building a wall or, or something like that. It would actually save you far more money. Yeah, and that's what I saw um, last summer. I went to uh, for the New York Times to report for to the most dangerous neighborhood in the murder capital of the world for years running. My my husband loves it when I go to these places. Um, but uh, in that hot spot of violence, it was a neighborhood called Rivera Hernandez. Um, I mean, two years ago, six gangs controlled it. There was a, a six p.m. curfew. Parents, they didn't let their kids step outside in broad daylight. And uh, it was so bad. The bodies littered the streets in the morning. There were uh, there were gangsters who would play soccer with the decapitated head of a person they had just executed uh, brazenly out in the street. And the U.S. said, we're going to we're going to, you know, after in 2014, this was at the top of the headlines. We saw a huge spike in kids coming from these countries. Uh, a tenfold increase over historic norms. So they were like, oh, well, maybe we should try to address the root causes of this. Uh, and we invested in violence prevention programs in a few pilot neighborhoods, including this one. And we founded outreach centers where kids can go and get mentors and help getting jobs. Um, we went into schools and we targeted what, what, and these are based on programs that have worked in Los Angeles and Boston. Um, what, which kids are most likely to go into gangs, have some of the nine risk factors, and give them a year of family counseling, and they found that those kids are 77% less likely to commit crimes or use drugs. And I think one of the most important things is we funded this nonprofit that goes into these worst neighborhoods and investigates homicides because, um, you know, in Honduras, 96% of all homicides never get investigated, never lead to, to a conviction. You can kill someone in broad daylight and get away with it because the witnesses are terrified to step forward. They'll be dead tomorrow if they step forward. So this group uh, coaxes witnesses to step forward over the course of months 
and they testify with a black burqa over them, and um, they're getting convictions now on more than half of the homicides. And what I saw in this worst neighborhood was that in two years with these the U.S. help and, and really these courageous local residents, leaders who were willing to step up and do the hard work, uh, homicides went down 62% in two years, and it cut the number of kids fleeing that neighborhood to the U.S. by half. Um, so I believe that this is an, a, a real, real win-win for the United States. It's a smart investment because we can spend $100 million in Honduras on this stuff, as we're doing now a year, or we can wait till these kids come here and we're spending billions of dollars on these kids once they're at our doorstep. And so for me, this is this is a no-brainer. This is what we should be doing. And I fear that now we're looking at cuts in State Department budgets that do this. Yeah, and USID and, or, or USAID <coughs> to foreign governments and different things like that. Um, right. So it, it, but the, the way that you're talking about it too, you, you could take this aid program and – you know, infusion of not just uh, treasure and resources into a country, but also sweat equity, if you will. And you could transfer that to other issues, you know, whether it be the uh, Syrian immigrants coming across the border and going through Eastern Europe and into mainland Europe or, you know, North Africa or anything else like that. And you can really start to see a trend of like, how do you actually solve these mass uh, influxes of immigration issues or migrant issues with regards to, you know, why are they coming? Well, there's issues. So right. why don't we solve those issues? Absolutely. And, you know, I think Europe's issues are much greater than ours. I, I think it is, uh, you know, nation, worldwide we're seeing more people migrating around the globe right now and more refugees. And that's someone who's fleeing their country because they fear for their lives and they have a government that can't or won't protect them more than at any time since World War II. And I mean, you look at countries like Germany, they took in a million uh, refugees in one year. We took in, you know, President Obama wanted to take in, I think he took in about 80,000 last year. So it's, it's a tiny, tiny fraction of what these other countries are doing. And I personally believe that as we try to work to help these countries address corruption and violence and bad governance and all of these things, uh, we do need to take in people, especially children who are running for their lives. Uh, when you look at the number of children coming to the U.S. alone, it's about you know, 60,000 kids a year. That's one football stadium uh, or smaller uh, of children per year. I believe that we as a nation can be compassionate enough to take in these children who are running for their lives. I think that's the kind of country that we should and ought to be. And I believe most Americans would go along with that, would support that. It's not an enormous uh, number that we cannot deal with and give these kids a safe harbor. I think if a child is running from danger and they knock on our door, a country like ours should be willing to open that door while we work on these issues. Here, here. I'm 100% on board with that. <laughs> I, so I really respect your commitment and your compassion. And I love the blend of heart with facts. And I, I, I just feel that, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm thrilled that we can get this message out there and for people to look at this very pertinent issue and um, broaden their thinking because it's, it's far bigger than building a wall. 
Well, and I think I, I think we I, I like to look at it from a pragmatic point of view. What will work? And the three things we keep trying haven't worked. And if as we part piloted these violence prevention programs most aggressively in Honduras and Central America, three years ago, 18,000 Honduran kids showed up at our border. Last year, it was 10,000. It was almost cut in half. And meanwhile, the number of kids coming from El Salvador, Guatemala, it kept going up. So I tell uh, conservatives, if you want to slow the rate of people coming here unlawfully, we know what we have to do. And it's going to cost you less uh, than, than dealing with these kids. And they will arrive at our border. I mean, we've thrown everything at trying to stop this flow. Uh, I wrote again for the New York Times about a year and a half ago out of Mexico how the U.S. has given Mexico 10 tens of millions of dollars in, recent, in the last few years to fund a ferocious crackdown aimed at keeping these kids from arriving at our border and begging for safety. And now they find they have found ways around that. Uh, just as many kids are fleeing now as two years ago. Uh, and despite the fact that getting through Mexico has gotten way more dangerous, the, the worst narco cartel in Mexico, the Zetas, they are uh, kidnapping 18,000 Central Americans a year, and they prefer to snatch kids off of those trains um, to demand ransom from parents in the United States, three to five thousand dollars. If they if you don't pay, they'll kill that child. And they are finding uh, in one state in Veracruz, they found about 140 mass graves in the last in recent months. Many are presumed to be immigrants. And so there are huge uh, risks to doing this journey now, much greater than when I did the journey. And yet these kids are still fleeing. So I, I try to look at this in a very pragmatic way. What will work? And I think this is what would, has the best odds of working. Well, I'm glad you brought up the Zetas. So, <laughs> I, I, I was actually going to mention that because it's interesting because uh, I, I followed this stuff pretty closely, but you look at these, um, what I like to call transnational criminal organizations, uh, you look at them and, and, you know, they figure out ways to get drugs in the country. They, they surely can figure out ways to get people into the country and it's no free lunch. They're going to charge you. And I, I, that's the nice way of saying that they're going to kidnap your kid or they're going to kidnap you when you come across. And then they're going to ask, uh, I think the price that I always hear is like 3000 to 5,000, like you just said, and they always, they either get it or, or they have no problem putting a bullet in your head. Right, right. And so I, I you know, it's, it's astounding to me what people are willing to do to escape these countries. But when you talk to children and they tell you, you know, what they've been through at the hands of the gangs. I, last summer, I was speaking to a boy named Kevin. At seven, he started recycling cans in his neighborhood to make money to eat. And at eight, the gang started pressuring him. You have to join. And they wanted him to move guns and drugs in the neighborhood in that bag that he used to recycle cans. And he always told them no. When he was 10, they came into his hut when his mom was out working and three of them held him down and took turns raping him. And they did it three more times over six months, trying to pressure him to join. Uh, when he was 11, he saw 15 people massacred before him at a soccer game by the gangs. Uh, he's had a sidestep bodies hacked to bits on the way to school. I mean, the things these children at the age of eight, nine, 10 face is unbelievable. And um, I, I would leave if I faced those things. Mm -hmm. Well, 
that's a little food for thought for everybody. And I think this is a good place for us to wrap up. Uh, if you guys are interested in having Sonia Nazario come to speak for you, uh, you can do so by contacting GDA speakers at 214-420-1999 or visiting gdaspeakers.com. If you'd like to buy this book, Enrique, uh, buy the book Enrique's journey or read the transcript from today's podcast, you can do so by going to gdapodcast.com. With that being said, Sonia, thank you for joining us. Thank you. Very, very insightful. No, thank you to you, Kyle and Gail. This has been great. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of GDA Podcast, powered by GDA Speakers. If you're interested in booking today's guest, visit GDA Speakers at gdaspeakers.com or call 214-420-1999. Visit gdapodcast.com and subscribe to our newsletter to stay up to date and be informed of new episodes, blog posts, and more. Be sure to follow GDA Podcast on Twitter and Instagram at GDA Podcast, as well as Facebook at facebook.com slash GDA Podcast. Thanks again and stay tuned for more from GDA Podcast and GDA Speakers.